So this is the last in the Esther series. We've managed to squeeze eight lessons out of it, which is not bad. So we're looking at the violence of grace. And so what we're going to do, we're going to first do a recap of the series, and then going to look at the violence of grace and the signposts that have been throughout Esther pointing towards that, that very fact. So I asked um, people in midweek to kind of share what kind of stuff God's been saying to them through the series. So I'm sure there's a lot more, but it's very difficult when you put people on the spot to, to hear what's going on. But the first week, we looked at um, living as exiles. And so there's a, we're homesick for a home that we've never really experienced. God's put eternity in our hearts. We long for something that this world cannot fulfill. And we know that God says for that, he wants us to have eyes for beyond this world. So don't get caught up in the world system but have a heart for this world. He's called us to be here. And uh, Julia was saying that um, she's beginning to see beyond the, the things that the world is putting a priority on. The next week, we looked at trusting God in the silence. And God works in the silence. We saw with all the dominoes of the story that there's, God works in coincidences. And we heard um, Balthazar and Ellie's story on video. Um, it's really humbling, though, when... You can't rely on your ability to spot God at work. And that's part of the challenge that we've looked at in that, that session. And so we, we know that when we can trust that God is working in the silence, we can endure lives that have horrendous bits in them because we know that God's working. We can worry less, if, uh, worry less about trying to be in control and see more of the, co the coincidences as something that God's doing. And that things that don't look right now can become right in the future. Then we looked at uh, discipleship. Because we started to think, so how do we partner with this God that operates in the silence? And we realized that, well, discipleship is one of the key things in the story. And that's one of the ways that he prepares us for partnering with him. And there's difference to receiving advice to receiving discipleship, and we looked at the difference of that. We used the acronym of THRIVE, and we put a priority on the impact rather than the mechanics of that relationship. And we were challenged to consider how do we increase the effectiveness of our relationships. Now, I personally have, have found since doing that session, I'm now... I've had people come to me and clarify relationships in terms of the discipleship. Put your hand up if, since we started looking at this series, either you've started discipling someone or you've been dis you're getting discipled by someone or you've made active, intentional steps to improve the quality of your relationship. We looked at working with God through utilising God's gym and we realised that Often God puts us through things that aren't our choice, but if we realize that he could actually be using that to change us, to prepare us, that he's lovingly prepared the challenges that we're facing, that's actually preparing us for the adventure that he wants to take us on. So how do we embrace rather than try and run away from what God's put in, put in front of us? Another way that we got a partner is we got to utilize the sightedness and the positioning that God gives us. Debbie's story, she said she was going through a really tough time at work and then she remembered that she's graced to be the answer and not the problem because God had put her there and had graced her to be there. She could be the, the, the 
active agent that causes a change in that area. Matt's been placed uh, to start a, the first Christian prayer group in a company of 3,000 people. And Amanda was saying that all these years, the things that she'd like to do, she suddenly realized she's doing those things. God had positioned her, and there's a real joy to what she's doing. So the question was, why are you here? And the sightedness that God gives us means that we can make use of those positions. Then we looked at um, the distraction of pride and beauty and how that can actually undermine our, our opportunity to work in partnership with God. Because we constantly make bad decisions when we're making them based on appearance. But he redefines the, the, the definition of beauty for us. He talks about sacrifice. He demonstrated his true beauty by leaving his beauty and sacrificing it all for us. And the challenge was that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And we actually saw in the story of Haman that it wasn't a problem that he wanted to be affirmed by someone that was greater than him, but he asked it of the wrong king. We all need that. We need to know that someone that is greater than us thinks the world of us, but we already have that in Jesus. And the, the, the seventh session we looked at was Seize the Day, and we talked about the concept of, of faith. And um, we'd done a number of, uh, of videos, including the Pepsi Max video of Jeff Gordon, the, the NASCAR driver that um, was uh, in disguise. Do you remember that video? Yeah. yeah. And um, at the end, when he reveals who he is, the uh, guy that was uh, scared stiff says, do you want to do it again? The key thing is, once you know who's behind the steering wheel, suddenly what was terrifying becomes an adventure. And that's, that's what we believe is, faith is about a relationship. It's not about mind over matter. It's not trying to summon something up in yourself. It all comes to when you see him for who he is, it completely changes your perspective. And we see time and time again throughout the Bible that faith provokes a response. God loves faith. He responds to it. And so the challenge is, how are you going to seize the day? What are you going to take hold of? What has he got for you today? So that brings to us to where we are, the violence of grace. After we, we've gone through all the story with, with Esther, she's uh, approached the king, she's petitioned on behalf of her people, and the king um, sets, uh, sets another law in motion, which means they can defend themselves. This law was passed out, and we follow, catch up with the story in Esther 9. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews, near and far, who were in all the provinces of the king, to establish amongst them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days in which the Jews had from their enemies. As the months um, which turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from morning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. This was, oh, didn't put it up. This was the key point for, for everyone to recognize we had rest from our enemy. We are no longer under threat. Um, we've conquered. The problem is man-made rest never lasts. And we've seen that throughout the Bible. We see that in the story of Judges, 
each, each judge comes along, um, frees the people, but then they forget and they do what's evil in the eyes of God. We see it time and time again going through, throughout all the Bible. There's always a new enemy that rises up that sets the peace in turmoil. And we can even follow it ourselves. So this is a picture of the Armistice Agreement, which was 100 years today. That was to be the war to end all wars, was what was decided. But then, a couple of decades later, we're back at another world war. And Woodrow Wilson, who was the president of America at the time, had before, um, before this set out 14 points for how to achieve peace. And it was considered to be a, a, a fairer way to ensure peace. But after he saw the way that the, the Germans forced the French to sign a peace agreement, he scrapped his own values and he put in a harsher punishment for them, a harsher peace, which was regarded as one of the causes or the, the, um, the weight that Hitler managed to use to, to bring the whole world back into war again. As they, had, they had the opportunity for peace, but revenge became a bigger priority. And that's in the nature of man, and we see it time and time again. And partly the reason why people were slow in Britain to respond to the rise of Hitler was they couldn't believe that anyone would take us into another world war again. This was the front cover of the Times um, back in 2014, and this is Cold War II. Because we're effectively back into the Cold War again now. It's just difficult to work out who's on whose side, I find, when I'm watching the news. But who would have dreamt it after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall that we would, people would willingly bring us back into such a state again? But it's not just these global events and these historical events. We see it in us all the time. We can even say, in a sense, I'm guilty. I return to habits that I know are no good for me. I live by values like, well, I would claim values like Woodrow Wilson would, but then I live them differently. Even I can't keep the rest that I wanted from my enemy. And we see that Jesus offers a rest that, that lasts. But he didn't go after the enemy. He went after enmity itself. Enmity is hatred, spite, it's hostility, it's something that can't just be put on one side or the other. Oh, they're the bad guys, or oh, they're the bad guys. It's interweaved with all of us. It's something that we all have. Because Jesus realized to destroy the enemy meant that it would mean destroying us. So he had to do something more radical than any biblical story has ever done. So we're trying to think of an illustration for that. So let me have my, my supporters. So we've got mankind here. We've got enmity, representing hostility, evil. And then we've got Jesus. How did he get us rest from enmity? It doesn't get rest the way that humankind think to get rest. He knew that he couldn't take out the enemy without taking us out, because we were also enemies. So he put down his weapon, he put down his strength, 
he died. And at that point, enmity saw its chance, and it, it, it left mankind and it went after Jesus. But that was part of Jesus' way to draw enmity out of us and to take it to the grave. And he had to go to the grave with it. But he didn't stay dead. He rose up and he could embrace us as friends. And that's how he destroyed the enemy. He destroyed the enemy by making the enemy a friend. Ephesians 2 says, And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put death to enmity. He offers us that rest by launching the upside-down kingdom. We were God's enemies, but he made us his friends. Through the death of his son, now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? It wasn't the way they were expecting Jesus to do it. Everyone, even the closest guys to him, thought he was going to crush the enemy. They thought he was going to take on Rome. Because that's always what the, the Jews around Jesus believed, was we will have victory over those that are oppressing us, because that's what it looked like in the past. Even after Jesus rises up again, you see in Acts 1 verse 6, they gathered around him, so this is a risen Jesus, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But so often they thought that that was the way that Jesus was going to deal with stuff. But he invented a new type of warfare that made all previous methods of warfare obsolete. And he was difficult to understand. It's difficult for us to to understand today, but how much more then? Talked about forgiving the enemy, turning the other cheek. When Jesus is arrested, Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. He draws his sword and Jesus heals his ear. He died instead of killing. He destroyed enemy by making him a friend. Because when we do evil to evil, evil wins. And even when you've been wronged or oppressed, evil can still win in you because you become self-righteous. I'd never treat someone like that. Hostility still exists in you if you take that position. Romans 12, 21 says, Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. It's the upside-down kingdom. And people still don't get it. Jesus offers us a rest that lasts because he wields violent grace. So why violent? It's violent, not in a physical sense, but defeating evil with good. It disrupts things. It demands my life, my all. It's more radical than any other concept as it goes right to the root. It's violent because it tells me, leave my life, pick up your cross and follow me. It's violent because it doesn't allow me to stay the same if I actually accept the grace that God has for me. Because the grace of God is totally free and costs me everything. The gospel of grace does not fit neatly into our lives. We can't just take it on as a nice set of thoughts or concepts. It wrecks us. It cuts the very arteries of our previous life. It's a slap round the face of everything that I want. You see, I want to be faultless. I want to have no charges brought against me. I want to be perfectly whole, 
But if there are faults, I want to be able to buy my way out of them. I want to be able to put up the cash. I want to be self-sufficient. Because if I can do all those things, I can live for myself. These are things that, that I want. But the gospel of grace is violent because it's a slap in the face of those things to me. Because I have to accept that I'm guilty and I need redemption. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I can't be faultless. It's, it's not possible. Well, okay, then let, let me buy my way out. Let me earn my way out. Let me build up my credits that, that I, can, I can get what I need. But I can't pay for it myself. I can't do it. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. I don't have the cash. I don't have the capital. I don't have the ransom money to buy my way out. Even the best things that I think I can do are like filthy rags. Psalm 49, verse 7 to 8 says, No one can redeem the life of another or give God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. So if I accept that I can't do it myself and that I am, I am in need of rescuing, I realize I no longer believe, live for myself. I have to live for him. Romans 14, 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we, are li- we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. The gospel of grace is totally free and costs you everything. It's violent. It disrupts my life. It's a slap in the face of everything that I want. The gospel of grace is both more wondrous and more threatening than I can grasp. If I see the gospel for what it is, I'm forced to make a choice. I can refuse what it stands for, or I recognize that I am completely wrecked and in need and dependent on him totally amazing thing it it took God to come up with that nobody could actually think of a plan like that Uh, it's beyond beyond the working out in the human mind and the this amazing gift of salvation and it very interestingly sets aside uh, this when it comes to this thing that we were just hearing about you, you, you you can't do it that's why all religion is a complete waste of time if you're using it to try and come to a place of being right with God. I say to people, you be any religion what you like, or vote for whoever you like, or choose whichever colour you like. That's just, a, you know, that's just a personal choice. It has no relevance to the fact that this, this violence of grace, this amazing power that God has ordained that he will change us from the inside and he paid the price to enable us to do that. So let's use something of this story to just illustrate 
kind of focus us in on this peace, this rest that lasts. Do you remember we looked at the story of the two famous runners? Uh, Lidl runs because he's accepted and it's a joy to him. Abraham, so just as famous in many ways, he ran in order to be accepted. And that really helps us to grasp the, the significant difference in the two things. It's about what he's done for us. Now, we've said a number of times, and I just want to come back to that, that if we read the story of Esther and it, we take it as an example, we can feel completely overwhelmed. I don't know if you're anything like me, but you're going through, well, if I was in that situation, what would I do? I don't know. It's, it's a completely overwhelming. If that's an example of what we should do because she chose to do it. it might feel like uh, Abraham's. I have that pressure to achieve. And suddenly, we're back into this, how can I do it? What is my power in this situation? That's the wrong way to read the scripture. Those stories aren't put there to give us something to live up to. They're signposts to what Christ has already actually done for us. We run, to come back to that analogy, we run because he's already accepted us. We don't have to live up to anything because he came down to us and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. He's done it for us. I mean, you know, I've got that background that sometimes I can't resist saying a little whoopee or if you want me to be a bit more holy, hallelujah. You know? I mean, guys, when we talk about the violence of grace, when we talk about what he's done, not what we have to do, but what he's done, it is an amazing thing. Let's look at some of the signposts in the story. We highlighted some as we, as we went through. Think about Esther had the opportunity to mediate for her people. What a fantastic thing. She had that opportunity. But Jesus mediated on our behalf, individually, personally, if we'd have been the only person ever to walk the earth, he still did it on our behalf. He, the Son of God, mediated on our behalf, stood in our place. Not at the risk of his life. Haman was forced to switch places with Mordecai. You remember that Haman had this plan. And when the king said, what can I do for the person I want to honour? He really, he lavished what he would like to happen for him. And then the amazing element of this story, he had to go do it for the person, the person that you would least want to do it for in the whole earth. Go and do it. He switched places with Mordecai. He didn't have much choice. But Jesus willingly swapped with us. Haman asked for the right thing to receive the praise of the praiseworthy. But he asked it of the wrong king. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Can you imagine that? Come on, guys, work, work with me. You're looking in the mirror and you sort of say, yeah, God's rejoicing over me. 
Don't work, does it? Somehow, it's got to be something different. But God actually rejoices over you. Rejoices to the point that he gave his only son. How does that make you feel? Somebody said good. Eh? Great. Well, that's three of us feel quite positive about that. <laughs> so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, I don't care of all the things that you could list and the enemy will help you of all the reasons why he shouldn't or couldn't. I just choose to believe that he does. I can't comprehend it. I cannot receive it in my natural mind because I know what I'm like. And I can't imagine why a God, a pure and holy, righteous God, but he does, and he chose to, and he does it with joy. Nobody made him. He chose to do it. Esther approached the throne, remember? She had to go before the king, and if she wasn't, if she wasn't requested or invited, then it meant certain death. So she approached the throne in fear and trepidation. But we're, this is another signpost, we can approach God himself, we can approach the throne of God. Why? Because all of God's wrath was taken by Jesus. We're free to approach him. No, no fear, no trepidation, because he loves us and rejoices over us. Esther was loved because she was beautiful. Jesus loves to use us despite our ugliness, and that makes us beautiful. When I say ugliness, I'm not talking about, you know, whatever you view yourself. I'm talking about the ugliness. But Jesus removes that and makes us beautiful. The king demands beauty treatment. The king of kings actually became naturally, cosmically ugly for us. He was bruised for our iniquities. He did that for us so that we could come into the presence of him and he could look upon us. Esther had favour upon her. Remember, somehow, she, everybody liked her. She had favour upon her. That meant doors opened for her, enabling her to achieve her purpose. But we have the ultimate favour on us. It's called the cleansing blood of Jesus. There is no greater favour than that. Are you going to have to help me? Choose somebody and say, actually, now you have to, you have to kind of work in pairs. Because what you need to do is not just he likes you, you have to say, you're his favourite. But so we don't have a problem, then you have to say, you're his favourite. To think that the nature of his love is not just that he's now prepared to put up with us, but he delights over us, has chosen us, set us apart for his own namesake. We're special to him. Yes. <laughs> I think it is a big hooray. You see, that flies right in the face of all the things 
that might have been done to you, said to you, all the things that the enemy would have had you believe, that God loves and has chosen you for his purpose and has provided as only he could so that you could come into his presence. See, he's done it all. I can exclude myself from this if I do not accept that he is the only one who could have done what I need. If for a moment I think I could have done it or I could, if I do certain things, I'll qualify, we will actually exclude ourselves because it has to be on the basis of I recognize that I can't, but he can. And God has honored him to say he is Lord and requires that that's our response to him. I can't, but he can. And he is Lord. And he was glad to do it. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. This is Isaiah 43.1. You are mine. You are mine. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Psalm 18.19. The Lord will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. No wonder we have to recognize that we're precious in his sight. I, the Lord, will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My compassion grows warm and tender. See, the signposts of what we see in the story of Esther take us to who he is and what he's done for us. And he wants us to live in growing appreciation and understanding of that. That's why we read in the scripture, all that they might know, something of the height and depth and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. I want to know that. I want to know that more. I want to grasp because it's beyond natural ability. But that understanding that is birthed deeper and deeper into our very being to know something more of the, of the breadth and depth of the love of God not only as a kind of mental or notional exercise, but as a, a, an experiential, it's an experience that then causes that very thing of the grace of God, the love of God, the power of God, the Spirit of God working in to actually work out through that I might be to the praise of his glory. Well, there's a practical application. I mean, we can all accord to that, that wide sense, that wonderful sense of his love and what he's done. But I do like to come back down to the so what. So what does that mean? What is that meaning in the here and now? Well, we choose in every situation to believe and allow God to be in control. We turn, tend to use the term about the lordship 
the rule of Jesus. That's the fundamental thing. Perhaps for the first time, you need to actually respond and accept that. In every situation, choose to believe and allow God to be in control. You have to come on the basis, I can't do it myself. I couldn't do it. There's no way. And we have to make that commitment to live for him. You see, this is what he told us to do. It's our obedience that he wants. Amen? Shall we pray? Lord, we choose to respond to you. We choose, Lord, to say, wow, these signposts, this salvation, the violence of grace, what you did, what you do, demands my heart, my soul, my all. I think this is a good moment to be restating that. We're the whole realm of nature mind. And we're an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my life.